Well, good morning, everyone. Morning. Thank you, Sean. <laughs> good to see everybody this morning. Turn your Bibles, if you would, please, this morning uh, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. Before we get started this morning, I'd just like to remind all of you that our God is most definitely still on the throne. And to remind you to stay encouraged, um, to keep your eyes upon Christ, upon the cross, and keep in step with the Holy Spirit uh, during these somewhat troubling times. And just remember that God uses these times and he uses adversity to strengthen his church and prosper his church, church in different ways in which the world can see. So we can, we can glorify God. We can celebrate uh, what God is doing. He has ordained all these things that have come to pass. We can trust in him. We can be thankful uh, for what he's doing. And this gives us a time as the body of Christ to shine uh, in this dark history uh, uh, you know, of our day and to, to really be the authentic, genuine church of the living God. Starting in uh, chapter 52, we're reading to uh, verse 9. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith the Lord, Ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. For thus saith the Lord God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore... What have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught, that they rule, and that rule over them, make them to howl, saith the Lord, and my name continually every day is blasphemed. Therefore my people shall know thy name, know my name, therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that doth speak. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publishes peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, and publishes salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together they shall sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord had made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Let us pray. Father, we approach your throne this morning through the blessed and holy, righteous, perfect blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we come, as the Bible says, we come boldly 
to the throne of grace. Uninhibited, Lord. Because of your power. And because of your enablement. Lord, because Christ has risen from the dead and He has defeated death, hell, and the grave, Lord, we come rejoicing. We come to the throne of grace to celebrate our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask today that You would bless us as Your people. Grant us the ability to hear Your Word proclaimed. Give us ears to hear. Open our hearts, Lord, that we can receive the Word of God. Help us to put all contentions aside. Help us, Lord, to remove all obstacles that would get in the way of truly hearing Your voice today. Lord, this gathering is about You. It's not about the preacher. It's not about anything else, Lord, but it it's about you and for your glory and for your fame. We ask, Lord God, that you would bless our time together. For the glory of Christ, I pray. Amen and so be it. Amen. Our focus this morning will be on verse 10 where the Lord, where the word of God says that the Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. A couple reasons why these last couple weeks we've really have dealt with different areas um, with the Word of God. I know we were we began we were preaching out of the uh, the Book of Romans. Sean and I have committed to um, going through the entire Book of Romans, but it seems that at times that in our days that. Um, we can't be ignorant of the times and we need to speak into the situation of our day. And I felt these last week's message and uh, this Sunday's message really uh, is for you, church, um, to be encouraged. I really um, sense that uh, this message um, will strike the foundations of who we are as the body of Christ. And I've titled this message this morning as an offensive faith and offensive faith not offensive in the sense of being rude or offensive in the sense of purposely provoking others to anger yet Christianity if it is genuine will ultimately offend the world and the opposite is also true. By its very nature, we too will be offended by the world's blasphemy, apostasy, perversion, and clear attack upon the gospel. But the offense in which we will be dealing with this morning is the nature of God in action upon the inhabitants of the world. Specifically, his people, the saints in which the Bible says our vessels fit for the master's use. We are really talking about the aggressive nature of the Christian church. William Grinnell, who penned the famous war treaties, the Christian in complete armor, dealing with Ephesians 6, encouraged his parishioners 
to see the passions of their lives in the broad setting of war and transformation. He says this, the bloodiest battle that had ever been fought by men, this mighty Puritan exclaimed from the pulpit, would be but sport and child's play compared to the furious endgame and prospect between the elect saints and their arch enemy, Satan. It was a future both terrifying and uplifting. It is a sad meditation indeed to think how many thousands have been sent to the grave in a few late years among us by the sword of man. But far more astonishing to consider how many of those may be sent to hell by the sword of God's wrath. Friends, family, we are in the bloodiest of all battles. And I think we need that sobering reality today. That we're not on a pleasure cruise but we're on a battleship stationed at the very gates of hell. And we as the Christian church in America who's been so coddled and babied and pandered and spoiled must come to that eye-opening conclusion that the Christian life really is paralleled with Christian warfare. We are being assaulted, as you all know, continually and obsessively on every front by the enemy. Would you agree? But here's the problem. We have played the defensive far too long. Self-preservation has been the doorway by which the enemy continually invades our lives. Based on the uh, real-life story of Todd Lubitsch, if you've ever heard of his name, who was played by John Travolta in the 1976 movie titled The Boy in the Bubble, is a story about a boy who was born with a failed immune system. You worry about the fact that living in the outside world would inevitably lead to his death. Todd was kept in a germ-free, isolated bubble where he could only make contact with others by remaining enclosed in plastic, in a plastic bubble. As we know, the story goes on that Todd eventually falls in love, decides that love is worth dying for, leaves his bubble and in hopes his immune system would be strengthened, which it did, and goes on to live a normal, happy life. The church today has literally become the boy in the bubble. We don't want to get dirty. We are chronically afraid of germs and each other. This is why we need to allow the love of Christ to compel us to go out into a filthy sin-infected world and bring them into the immunity of God's community, into God's family. We must ultimately, 
as the scriptures will show, we must be on the offensive and not the defensive. Isaiah himself was certainly a man and prophet who had an offensive ministry. Isaiah was a Hebrew prophet who was believed to have lived about 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Born in Jerusalem, Israel, he was said to have found his calling as a prophet when he saw a vision in the year of King Uzziah's death. Isaiah prophesied the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He predicted the coming of Jesus Christ to salvage mankind from sin. He was, a, in essence, a gospel preacher. As a matter of fact, Isaiah's name actually means the Lord is salvation. In fact, Isaiah is one of the most important books in the Old Testament. It is not only a narrative story, but also a collection of oracles, prophecies, and parables. Isaiah, who authored the book, wrote it in around 700 B.C. The book is the first of the major prophets as well as the first of the latter prophets. Isaiah's purpose was to bring back the nation of Judah, God's nation, back to the faithfulness as well as proclaim the coming of the Savior and his future reign. He brings the message to Judah and Israel of condemnation as well as a message of hope and salvation through the coming of the Messiah, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus Christ echoed this when he said to Peter, basically speaking to his apostles when he said, And I also say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here Christ himself was declaring the very nature of the Christian church. The very nature of an unstoppable gospel. That it was the word of God and the aggressive nature of the people of God who have been transformed by God invading the world. Not protecting themselves from the world. Not hiding from the world. But because they were born from above. They were born of Christ. Born of the Spirit. There was an inward aggression, not in a negative sense. So take it the wrong way. You know what I'm saying here? It was an aggressiveness of God. Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. It was an invasion. It was going into every track and crevice of our culture with the life-saving, power-generating gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to be an un leashed people not a bound people a free people a courageous and brave people not a terrified people I don't care what the news continually tells us from whatever position you stand constantly wanting us to be afraid wanting us to be scared wanting us as they use the word terrified they're coming after you has never terrified the saints of Jesus Christ ever throughout history. Don't get me wrong. There are times we feel that fear. 
We feel the pressure. We feel the tension. I have, and I still do. But I know ultimately who's our victor and where we stand as believers, that we have already have the victory in Jesus Christ. Come what may, we've already won. If they decide to cut you in half, burn you at the stake, shoot you in the head, you will be, your soul will land in the loving hands of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You have nothing to fear. You have to understand that God is truly sovereign. We throw that around in the Reformed community sometimes, almost in a way that can be a little idolistic. Because the reality is true. God is sovereign. But if we truly believe that God is in control, that He created all things, He's ordained all things, He holds all things together, and nothing slips His sight, and He has predestined that, and we truly believe that, then we certainly would believe and behave in a different way. The first thing that strikes me about the entire chapter of 52 of the book of Isaiah is its relevance to chapter 53. And we know, we all know that, you know, uh, dividing of the chapters came later on in history when they began to divide the chapters up by numbers. We know that in actuality, all of these flow together. It's the relevance of chapter 53, which is one of the most profound, powerful chapters in the entire Bible. 52, in essence, really is like a schoolmaster. It's like a forerunner as it leads us up to this great reality of what's to come when 53 begins to declare our suffering Savior, begins to declare Christ and the reaction of the world. In chapter 52, has this awake, awake feeling to it. Put on strength, beautiful garments, shake thyself. This reality, this revivalistic reality of what's to come. That God has come to save His people and He does not fail. And when God saves His people, they are a changed and transformed people and they do not fail. Failing in the sense of our sinful nature, sure. Yes. Let's not say we're, we're, we're not perfect in that sense. This isn't sinless perfection being preached. We still have our sinful nature to deal with. Don't get me wrong, this is not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying here is this, is that when we have been transformed by God, an aggressive God, an invading God that has come into our life based upon His own decision, based upon the freedom of His own will, changes and transforms His people. Through that process, the people of God will reflect the nature of their God and how they confront the world. Matthew Henry, uh, Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, writes when dealing with Isaiah 53, he says, The two great things which the Spirit of Christ in the Old Testament prophets testified beforehand were the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And that which Christ himself, when he expounded Moses and all the prophets, showed to be one of drift and scope of them all was that Christ ought to suffer and then to enter in to his glory. But nowhere in all the Old Testament are these two so plainly and fully prophesied of as here in chapter 53. 
Isaiah 53 is the gospel preached by God himself to a people who would ultimately reject and despise their long-awaited Messiah. Isaiah 53 is drenched with Christ. His person, his suffering, his rejection, his death, his resurrection, his victory, his reign, his return, and final removal of all of his enemies and permanent destruction of death itself. Our focus this morning will be upon chapter 5210 where the Lord hath made bare His holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Four things we can establish by reading this verse. The first is that our God is an offensive God. Number two, our God is a confrontational God. Number three, our God is a holy God. And number four, our God is a gracious God. Starting in point one here, if you're taking notes, our God is an offensive God. He is not on the defensive. God is never on the defensive. He doesn't need to protect himself, and he certainly does not need to prove himself. God is always assumed in Scripture. He is never proven. Therefore, He does not need anyone's permission, acceptance, opinions, or advice. He will do whatever He pleases without the permission of men. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. He does whatever pleases him. Not what pleases you. Not what pleases me. But he does whatever ultimately glorifies him and brings him pleasure. Ultimately, even our salvation isn't about us. It's about reconciling us back to a God that we've offended for his glory. That would no longer be blasphemers and rebels. But the fact is that we would be true worshipers of the living God who worship Him in truth and in spirit. He saves us for Himself. For the chief end of man, what? It's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. A saint that truly glorifies God will most certainly enjoy God forever. The Lord hath made bare His holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. What exactly does that mean? What does that mean? We have to come, we have to ask that question because we can skip over words and like, well, you know, I, I get it, generally speaking, but what's the reality? What kind of picture, what kind of illustration, what kind of metaphor is God saying in His Word when He's talking about that the Lord had made bare His holy arm in the eyes of all the nations? What is He saying here? Well, for one thing, it is an offensive statement. That's not a defensive statement. It's an aggressive act. It's actually a picture or imagery of war. Albert Barnes in his commentary says, that the statement, the Lord has made bare his holy arm, is a metaphor taken from warriors who made bare the arm for battle. And the sense is that God had come to rescue the rescue of his people as a warrior. 
in that his interpositions would be seen and recognized and acknowledged by all nations. The metaphor is derived from the manner in which the Orientals dressed. John Gill echoes this statement when he says, this allusion is to military persons preparing for battle. The warrior preparing for action throws off his mantle, tucks up the sleeve of his tunic, and leaves his outstretched arm free. As a warrior is accustomed to make bare his right arm up to the shoulder that he may fight without encumbrance. So as Jehovah may bear his holy arm, that arm in which holiness dwells, which shines with holiness, in which acts in holiness, that arm which has been hitherto concealed and therefore has appeared to be powerless, and that in the sight of the whole world of nations, so that all the ends of the earth come to see the reality of the work, which this arm has already accomplished by showing itself in its unveiled glory. In other words, the salvation of God. According to the authorities, it was said of the great military leader, George Skanderberg, who held off the Muslim, Muslim invasion in Europe for 25 years victoriously, was said to have saved Europe from becoming a pagan nation in the 15th century. It was said of Skanderberg in the midst of the battle. It was said that he ever fought against the Turks with his arm bare. And that with such fierceness that the blood did oftentimes burst out of his lips. This is the picture that we must have when we understand the bearing of the arm of the Lord. An extract from Jowett's Christian Research explains the language this way. He says that the loose sleeve of the Arab shirt, as well as that of the outer garment, leaves the arm so completely free that in an instant, the left hand passing up the right arm makes it bare. And this is done when a person or a soldier, for example, is about to strike with the sword and tends to give the full arm the full play. The image represents Yahweh as suddenly prepared to inflict some tremendous yet righteous damage, righteous judgment, so effectual that all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. The phrase holy arm seems to mean that God would be engaged in a holy and just cause. It would not be an arm of conquest or oppression, but it would be, it would be made bare in a holy cause and all its inflections would be righteous. The Bible says in Exodus 15, 3, that the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. This is the same God that we serve today. There are not two separate deities, one in the Old Testament, one in the New. It's the same God from the beginning to the end. Jesus Christ, the triune nature of God, were there. Christ was there. When brimstone fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah, Christ was there. He wasn't absent that day and just pop up in the New Testament. He was there. Endorsing it. Which brings us to our second point. Our God is a confrontational God. You know, hearing that God is, an, is on the offense, that God is the one that initiates 
doesn't sit real well with today's American evangelical church. Saying that God is confrontational is quite, in one sense, offensive to the American church today. But I don't know how you can read the Bible and gather anything else. The scripture says, well, I think John the Baptist was the one that cried out, it says, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, Matthew eleven twelve. But the violent take it by force. This isn't a physical violence, by the way, but this is a clash between two worlds, the world of the righteous and the world of darkness, clashing, coming together. The kingdom of heaven, it suffers violence. Why does it suffer violence? Because we attack it. We don't run from it. We collide with it. It's two kingdoms coming together. This is what God has called us to do. Our God is a confrontational God. The Lord had made bare His holy arm in the eyes, in the eyes of all the nations, in all the ends of the earth shall see with those eyes the salvation of our God. This verse declares that God is not only on the offensive, but He is a God that swiftly and powerfully confronts His enemies. God not only confronts all and everything that opposes his nature, righteousness, and will, but he confronts our sin. It's very easy to to read verses like this and jump up and down uh, with this idea that God is just going to come and squash all of our physical enemies. Well, that could be so. God can do whatever he pleases. He's done it before. But the reality is, is that God needs to crush and squish our sin. See, this idea of God invading our lives was never our own idea. Our God is on no friendly terms with sin. Whether that be with a person individually, or a church corporately, or on a national level. God is confrontational. He is not what many in the American church today like to promote him, such as this overly loving, sin-excusing, pandering Santa Claus in the sky obsessing over a bunch of spoiled children. One of the most astounding examples of confrontation was Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. I don't remember God ever asking him permission to visit him. And I don't think God would be particularly called a gentleman by knocking him clean off his high horse. Well, maybe that's just God's definition of being a gentleman. Maybe a true gentleman does knock us off our high horse when we need it. When Joseph was confronted, his brothers after that sold him into slavery. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? He confronted them. He reached out to them. And it wasn't sinful. It was a byproduct of the main product, which was Christ. The power of God working with him. Moses confronted Pharaoh when he said, let my people go. He didn't shrivel in the corner even though he wanted to. As a matter of fact, when God would go tell him to speak to the people, it seemed like God didn't answer his prayer, but just added more work to the Israelites. 
He felt every time he spoke the truth, negative things would happen with God's people and it did cause a fear in him. He was terrified at some level. But the reality is the call of God upon his life, the nature of God moving upon his prophet, overshadowed his fear and moved him into an arena where he was speaking to the most powerful person in the land, telling them that you need to let my people go. This is a warning to you. You better let go. Or you're going to fall under the most terrific judgments ever known to mankind. Elijah confronted King Ahab. He says, I have not made trouble for Israel. Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed after Baal's. False gods. Psalm 94, 16 says, God says, who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Or who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? It's good that we intoxicate ourselves with these verses because it brings an acclamation and a... a a setting, if you would, of bones in our Christian body to understand what we're truly here for. Why we exist as the body of Christ. Why are we here? We're not here to go to war, but we most certainly have wars to contend with. Spiritual warfare, who likes that? Who enjoys, oh, I love spiritual warfare. It's just such an enjoyable thing to do. By far, spiritual warfare is usually much worse than physical warfare. And the physical destruction of people nowhere compares, as William Grinnell says, to the spiritual death of people as they're being sent to hell by the droves. Brings us to our next point. Our God is a holy God. Our God is a holy God. And the tail end of that is our God demands and commands holiness from his people. Today, you don't find a lot out there preaching about the holiness of God or the holiness of the saint. Biblical holiness in light of who we are as the people of God. Because holiness seems to send a signal to us that we have to give up everything we like and put on some kind of performance of do's and don'ts, right? There's a lot of movements called the holiness movement, holiness churches. Fundamentalism was big in its day, never worked, kind of fizzled out because it really it really minimized the law of God, really minimized what the true requirements of holiness are. It wasn't how short your hair was or whether or not you had a certain style of clothes or you didn't wear jeans or didn't smoke, it had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with that fundamentalism in its day. That was the holiness movement of the past. But true holiness is given to us by God. It's a behavioral, 
uh, uh, it's where living water, as the scripture says, pours out of us because we are born again of the Holy Spirit of God. We bear fruit in agreement with the one we profess to follow. It's a righteousness that, that is seen by the world around us that can even be confusing and offensive to those who are of the world. And the sad thing and the most scariest thing is, is when we have a body of individuals who call themselves Christians, right? But yet there's no holiness in their lives. There's no godliness. It's just worldliness and then calling themselves a Christian, which creates and causes more damage of all. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Deliverance will be seen in the lives of God's people. See, God who who rolled up his sleeve for battle, revealed his arm of the Lord, which is Christ himself, did battle and secured a people unto himself. And those people who have been delivered by the great commander will be present and be known in the world by their holiness. Because why? God is a holy God. And when he saves his people and he changes his people and he transforms his people, they become holy. It is a product of our salvation. It doesn't happen all at once. It's progressive. The little more of you dies each day, the more of Christ can be revealed. We don't become a better me. We become a more dead of me. That Christ can be seen and revealed. In Hebrews 12, verse 14, it says, Follow peace with all men, and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. You know, and I, and I would, I would, you know, declare to you this morning that if there is zero holiness in your life or zero desire to be holy, you may want to re-examine yourself and see if you're still in the faith. If your affections are never on the things of God, you never have a desire to be in communion with God. You never have a desire for the Word of God. You never have a desire to be around the people of God. There's probably a good chance you're not of God. It's sad, but you know what? What would you rather hear? You're okay? Pander to the emotions? Pander and appeal to our sensual, sinful nature? Or tell you the truth? The reality is that we need to reflect our God. In 1 Peter 1.14 it says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. It is written, be holy. Why? Because I am holy. We're made in the very image of God. We are to reflect Him into the world. Paul Washer had said, the most powerful thing on this planet, humanly speaking, is a pious life, a godly life. Seek to be like Christ. Today there are so many, there's so much attention given to programs, church growth, plans, and strategies. The most powerful thing on this planet is being Christ-like and walking in simple obedience to our Lord. 
Spurgeon said, in God's school, the teachers must be masters of the art of holiness. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God, cried out Robert Murray McChain. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. That any one of us are called to minister. He has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of a reverence and love for God. You see this now. You understand that God is a holy, the holy arm of God has been revealed, not only in who God is himself, but we see these characteristics of humanity which points to Christ, but also points to what? His body. His body, a reflection of this reality of salvation that's being exposed to all the world, that God has saved his people. How will we even know that? Because of the holiness that these people represent the holiness of the Lord. Just remember, Isaiah himself was very aware of who Christ is. He knew all about the holiness of God. We've sung it this morning. Holy, holy, holy. His life-shattering encounter with the King of Kings in chapter 6 left him permanently wrecked. He was completely undone, unraveled, and leveled by the holy presence of God. You can definitely um, rest in the reality that Isaiah knew this idea of the holiness of God. Second Timothy 2.21 says that, our, that we are sanctified and fit for the Master's use and prepared for every good work. This is who we are, brothers and sisters. Isaiah, he beheld and saw high and lifted up the, under, the untamed ferocious lion of the tribe of Judah sitting upon the throne. And it's interesting when we understand this, this reality, a lot of times we, we can look at ourselves, we can look at the, the numbers of our congregation and we can come to this almost terrifying reality, which we shouldn't be terrified, is that we're so outnumbered. And I'm experiencing a lot of that this week, which I uh, expressed this morning in Bible study, I was confessing my sin before the men uh, just of this idea of being bullied by the world. This continual harassment and antagonism and bullying almost pushing to such an extent where everything within me, the very fabric of my being, wants to retaliate. Yeah, some of that is good. The righteous indignation of God, the righteous anger, that, 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 that's in us against evil should always be there. But also we got to be careful that it doesn't ruin us. You know, we become bitter and cynical and hateful and poisoned by it. Because then what happens is it leaks over and onto everything we come in contact with. 
So we have to understand in Revelation 7, 9, it says, After these things I look, and behold, a great multitude, which no man could number, all nations, tribes, and peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And as the book of Hebrews says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. No, there is a multitude. There is a great, great cloud of witnesses. There's thousands that went before you. You stand upon the shoulder of thousands of men and women who did not back down. who aggressively went after the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which brings us to our last point. Our Lord is a gracious God. All of His dealings are gracious, even His judgments. The Lord hath made bare His holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This holy arm in Scripture is none other than a type and picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the point which really captures the beauty of who we are. In Isaiah 52, verse 7, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publishes peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Romans 10.14 echoes this. How then, how then can they call upon the one whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear with someone to preach? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all of them welcome the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who hath believed our report. We talked about the uh, separation of chapters. The separation isn't there. As Paul is clearly showing us, he rolls right into 53, like we talked about in the very beginning, that he rolls right into it. He begins to explain the exuberant, um, celebrated uh, attitude of God's people and coming out of a very sinful lifestyle. Break forth into joy. Be those beautiful feet upon the mountaintop. Be the one that brings peace peace through preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It lays all this out and then it brings us to 53 and declares who this is that is going to be preached. Who is this? And it says that many do not believe our report. He comes right off the very beginning of that verse and says, Who hath believed our report? Who has believed it? And it's an important thing to realize that people will not believe our report unless God, He Himself, our Sovereign Lord, opens their eyes and grants them what? A new heart that follows hard after God. A heart given to you by God cannot but help obey God. It cannot but obey God. Our God is a gracious, gracious God. Romans 10, 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the essence of the message. 
I can't go beyond Christ and His gospel with any verse or scripture. It must always point to Christ and His redeeming work on humanity. The Bible says in Romans 10, 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It says here that all the nations shall see the salvation of our Lord, even to the ends of the earth. Which Paul echo, echoes in, in verse 18 of chapter 10. He says, But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. Which brings us back to our text this morning. That the Lord Himself has made bare His holy arm to all nations. And before Christ returns, the second coming of Christ, His work will be complete. All of those in who He has elected will come in. He has died and He has secured that for Himself. And this reality will come into play. No matter what the news tells us, it makes no difference what they say. It matters what God says in the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, we are so grateful we have a Bible. We are so grateful that we have the Word of God. Let us never, ever take that for granted, Lord. When there's brothers and sisters around the world who would be extremely ecstatic just to have one page. Lord, make us an aggressive church. Not sinfully aggressive, but godly aggressive. Lord, that you would set us on fire. That we'd be immobilized out into the world and not be afraid of the world. That we would break out of that bubble because of our love of Christ and our love for souls. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.